Mormon Discussion Podcast survives on the donations of listeners like you. For those who have donated, I am grateful for those donations and appreciate you greatly. For those who have not donated, would you consider donating today to help this podcast to continue on and to go forward? I hope this podcast means something to you. Here's your chance to show it. Donate today at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the left-hand side. You can click the PayPal button and make a one-time donation, or just underneath it, you can subscribe and become a regular subscriber for as little as a dollar a month or $10 a year. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. In today's episode, I wanted to sit down with you and share with you my framework for how the translation of the Book of Mormon occurred. What was going on when Joseph got the plates? Why perhaps he didn't use them at times for the translation? Why was there a need to put a stone in a hat rather than use the Urim and Thummim? In sharing my perspectives, I must make it clear that they are they are mine. But it's simply the way that I and and as a few other perhaps have added in a way of understanding the story, the storyline, the narrative so that it fits, so that it works. This isn't about faking it or creating a place for faith to exist when there really shouldn't be that place to begin with. But rather it's taking the actual context in which the things that transpired in the early history of the restored gospel and really delving deeper to really understand what it is that's going on. And perhaps recognizing that over the last 150 years, that we as a people have been too too quick to accept the easy answer or the simple answer, when in reality life is very complex. Let's begin with Joseph's background, the fact, the background of his family. So we have Joseph Smith Sr., and he lives in Sharon, Vermont, where many of the family members are born. Joseph Smith Sr., I believe his farm failed three years in a row. And when that farm fails, the Smith family moves to Palmyra, New York. It's interesting that, as a side note, that the Lord needed Joseph Smith in Palmyra, where the plates were, and yet the family starts off in Sharon, Vermont. And by the process of this farm and failing and them not being able to pay on the land, that they have to move, and maybe just a little tidbit of why tough things happen and why we each have challenges, and recognizing that it's 
It's not always bad luck or God cursing us, but rather God placing us where he needs us. We know that when the Smiths get to Palmyra, New York, we have several accounts in the records of them digging wells for people in the area. To us in our in our day and age, that simply sounds like a man or a group of men who go and dig a hole where the water is so that people can have it. But there's more to it than that. In Joseph Smith's day, they didn't have the technology for finding water that we do today. It would have been a waste of work to dig a hole and to find there's no water in that place. What I'm getting at is it's very likely that the Smith family was into what's called water witching. Now, I don't want this to sound like some occult practice or some type of tarot card type of thing. And again, today, in the way we see the world, we look at things like Ouija boards and tarot cards and and we see them as people, or crystal balls. We see people as, as either A, being deceptive and acting like they have some spiritual power they don't have, or we see this power coming from the devil. But we ought to be careful here. We know from some of the church sources that Oliver Cowdery used what was called a divining rod. These divining rods were often Y-shaped sticks that people would use to locate water. They would hold the two ends of the stick, and then the center piece extending forward would all of a sudden point down when they walked over a place where water was. We know that the Smith family, Joseph Smith Sr. and his sons, were hired to dig wells. And if they were hired to dig wells, they were likely better at others at locating water. Anybody can dig a hole, but to find the water underneath is the tricky part. So it sounds like this family, at least at least Joseph Smith Sr., if not other members of the family, had the ability to locate water by a method called water witching. Now again, while that method is weird to our modern senses, many still today believe and use water witching as a process to find water underground. May I share one message that someone sent me? They said, by the way, in regard to water witching, The area in which I reside is a desert area of eastern Washington, with dry wheat farming being the principal agricultural activity. The folks here are highly dependent on wells. People here in general would not think of locating a well unless it was properly done by a diviner. There are still those who actively practice divining today. One very old gentleman is considered particularly gifted, and locals tell me he is never wrong. The members of the branch here agree with the community at large that this activity is entirely legitimate has nothing to do with witchcraft, occult, or any nefarious activity. It is a gift of God, a talent, like singing beautifully. If Joseph Smith practiced divining, it makes perfect sense as one gifted in spiritual things. So that's one message I got from somebody as I was having a conversation about water witching and about how that method works. It's important, if you were to go onto YouTube, for instance, and type in water witching or divining rod, you'll actually get videos of people today going out in the woods and showing you how it works. And I'll leave it up to you to believe whether it does or not, but I would simply say that there's a lot of things that happen in this world that work that we don't quite understand why. The next thing I want to talk about was how Joseph discovers the seer stone. And if we keep in mind kind of this water witching as a background, realizing that God does have spiritual gifts that he gives people that to our common senses of today would make no sense at all and seem strange and out of place. But in reality, if we just for a moment just allow for some spiritual gifts that we today would be uncomfortable with, but to acknowledge as real and true. Joseph locates the seer stone in 1822. Some of the records indicate that he finds it using another seer stone while digging a well with or for Willard Chase. Now, Willard Chase's name to most members may not ring a bell, but his sister, whose name is Sally Chase, might. If you remember some of the stories you learned in the church of when Joseph got the plates, you'll remember that there was a woman who had the ability to divine who had a stone 
And she then was hired or um, requested by a group of people to help find the gold plates that Joseph Smith had. And so this was the group that marched over to the Smith home and were prepared to look under the hearth, except that Joseph was told by Heavenly Father in a spiritual prompting to move the plates from under the hearth to somewhere else before they came. And so, yes, this Sally Chase is the sister of Willard Chase, the man who, whether Joseph was digging for him or with him, found the seer stone. It's also important to keep in mind that this date of 1822 comes after the date which we believe Joseph has the first vision. And I say believe not in the sense that it's skeptical, but in the sense that if we look at the multiple versions of the the first vision, the multiple accounts of the first vision, we recognize that Joseph is not a 100% clear on exactly how old he was when that vision takes place. We use the official account and we say that Joseph was 14, but with multiple accounts of the first vision, we are we are left to consider that the most reliable age, but that there is some room for, for difference of thought there. So the date of 1822 and getting the stone occurs two years after we think the first vision takes place, which is important because if Joseph has seen Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ and spoken to them, and then two years later receives a stone that allows him to see things that others cannot, then it's not out of the realm of understanding that Heavenly Father gave Joseph this stone. Joseph is accused of being a treasure digger or a glass looker. What this means, if you can kind of keep in mind that in today's time we have video games and computers and Facebook and Twitter and lots of other things that people can do for fun, back then you could read and there were stories you could tell. And some people practiced a uh, an exercise called treasure digging, which essentially the folklore of the time was that there were great treasures hidden by Spaniards and others out in different areas, and that certain people had a spiritual gift to see things that others could not. And those people who were that could see those things, who were hired or who on their own sought to find these deposited treasures, were called a treasure digger. A glass looker was along the same lines. It was one who would look into a stone or a piece of uh, glass or transparent stone, perhaps, and again, be able to see things that others cannot. While some people looked at these behaviors as outside the norm and inappropriate, we must keep in mind that unlike today, these behaviors would have been seen as much more mainstream than than some of the things we see today, such as, uh, again, tarot card readers or people looking into a crystal ball. I want to, I want to frame this idea that Joseph Smith wasn't a treasure digger at all, although he did do treasure digging, but rather that we look at him more like a lost item finder. And what I mean by that is that there are several records, journal entries and early accounts of people sharing uh, their details on Joseph Smith that indicate that Joseph would have someone come to him who had lost something. Maybe they misplaced their hammer or their cow had left the field and, and they didn't know where it went. And so they went to Joseph and said, Joseph, I've lost my hammer. I can't find it. Could you help me find it? And so Joseph would take his seer stone, would use it in whatever way a seer would do that, and then Joseph would see in the stone where the hammer was or where the cow was. And he would then tell the owner, here's where you need to go to find it. Brant Gardner, in his book, The Gift and Power, comments that there are several accounts that record Joseph having helped someone locate the lost item. So Joseph seems to have a reputation for being successful at being a lost item finder. Now, we know that Joseph does go treasure digging at least once with Josiah Stoll, who lives in Harmony, Pennsylvania, I believe, or at least nearby. 
Now think about this. If Joseph is a treasure digger who is trying to deceive people and rip people off, and he's in Palmyra, New York, how does somebody all the way in Harmony, Pennsylvania, get duped by Joseph? Rather, isn't the more likely idea that Josiah stole hears through the grapevine how good Joseph is at being a lost item finder, at being one who can find other people's lost things. Josiah stole outside of any knowledge of Joseph Smith, hears about how Spaniards have deposited a treasure, and he believes it. He thinks it's more than just folklore. So what does he do? He needs to find somebody who is successful at seeing things that others cannot. And so then he goes and fetches Joseph Smith out of Palmyra, New York. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? Doesn't that seem to fit a lot better? And so if we accept that Joseph does have a spiritual gift for finding lost items for people, that because of his talent that others wanted to have him work for them or to help him help them find valuable goods that were hidden in the earth, and that Joseph, for whatever reasons, on at least an occasion or perhaps two, goes along with it to try and help this person. We know that Joseph was tried in 1829, I believe, for glass looking by Josiah Stoll's nephew, I believe. And I'm sorry if I'm not getting all the details right. I'm not, I'm not a huge uh, history nut who, who has every detail on the tip of his head. I just know that I've read these stories several times and I'm, I'm trying my best to put these together. But Josiah Stoll, I know it's his relative. And I think it's his nephew. Uh, Josiah Stoll's nephew uh, presses charges against Joseph for glass looking. And so there's this trial that the critics make a big deal out of for Joseph being tried for glass looking. But the most important thing to keep in mind is that Josiah Stoll himself testifies on Joseph's behalf. Now think about that. If Joseph is a fraud who's duping people, and Joseph treasure digs for Josiah Stoll, and he is unsuccessful because it's a total scam and there is no treasure, then we would expect Josiah Stoll to be the first one to throw Joseph under the bus. But he doesn't. He testifies that while they didn't find the treasure, and again, keep in mind that I believe Josiah Stoll was the one who thought it was there, and Joseph simply assisted him in trying to find it, that while there was no treasure, that Joseph had done other things with the seer stone and Josiah Stoll's presence that testified to Josiah Stoll anyway, that Joseph had a real ability. Now, that helps us understand Joseph as a treasure digger in context. We also know that Joseph gets the plates, right? We know that, I believe it's 1824, that Moroni visits Joseph in his bedroom in September and three consecutive visits visits with him and then the next morning visits with him again. And so Joseph goes to the hill and he gets the plates four years after 1824. And so in 1827, Joseph finally receives the plates and he needs to translate them. The critics like to point out that when Joseph did the translation, Joseph didn't have the plates in front of him. I think it's more complex than that. The critics paint a picture as if we have two or three uh, uh, single eyewitness statements that plainly make it apparent that the plates are not sitting out in front of Joseph and that Joseph is translating without them. While some accounts do state that Joseph didn't use the plates, what you need to know is that there are hundreds, it seems like, of these accounts of first-hand and second-hand witnesses speaking about what they saw or what a first-hand witness told them. It makes the narrative very confusing and very complex. But let's start off here. Why would Joseph need the plates if he didn't use them? Let's make the assumption that he didn't use the plates at all. Why would Joseph need to have the plates? Now, part of this goes back to the idea that we need to understand what the translation process is. In our minds, we hear the word, you know, Joseph Smith translated the plates. And we make this assumption that what Joseph is doing is he is being told by God what characters in Reformed Egyptian then translate over into English. 
And while that's how translation works for scholars, I don't picture that's how God's doing it. I have a hard time saying, or thinking in my mind, that Heavenly Father is saying, Joseph, here's this reformed Egyptian character. It looks like an upside-down Y with a line through it. And this means, and it came to pass. I don't feel like that's what's going on. Grant Gardner refers to the idea that rather than looking at it as translation, we should think of the word transmission. Regardless of what Joseph has in front of him or the method he is using to translate, it is Heavenly Father who is taking the English translation and giving it to Joseph. Now, I'm not saying there isn't any work involved. There is. But it's not a matter of Joseph trying to figure out what Egyptian characters mean in English, but rather Heavenly Father giving him the answer to the test. It it requires us to understand the translation a little differently. That Joseph doesn't know Reformed Egyptian at all. He doesn't have a clue. And while translators today obviously know both languages that they're working with, Joseph only knows English. And so no matter what method is being used, Heavenly Father is essentially giving Joseph the answers to the questions. Now, as we look at this translation and transmission and understand that, whether Joseph is looking at a stone in a hat, whether he is looking at the plates, whether he is standing on his head reading a fairy tale book with one eye covered, there's nothing stopping Heavenly Father from placing in Joseph's mind the narrative of the Book of Mormon. Whether he does that by giving him exact words, whether he does that by giving him ideas, or whether he does that by giving him a mix of both, doesn't matter. And then to add on top of that, that Joseph needed something to believe in to begin with. We know that when Joseph translates the 116 pages, we're pretty certain that he uses the Urim and Thummim. We know sometime after the loss of the 116 pages, he resorts back to the seer stone that he found in 1822. And then we know later on with the book of Abraham and other revelations that he doesn't use anything. So there seems to be this progress of, as Joseph begins to understand this process better, as he begins to have more faith in his ability as God gives it to him, there seems to be less of a need for an object to place that faith in. And so if we think of the plates as something needed to place faith in, not only for Joseph, but for the witnesses, think about it. If Joseph didn't have the plates, and God simply said, you don't need the plates, I'm just going to give you the Book of Mormon. I'll just tell you what it says. Then those around him are going to be less likely to be able to have faith in him or to believe in the story. And yet, for this church to get off the ground, he needs people to have faith. And I'm not talking about Joseph, I'm talking about Heavenly Father. And so Heavenly Father causes not only for these plates to be written, which is a arduous task, and to be kept for years and to be stored and protected, and then to allow all the trouble that Joseph has to go through to get them and to have them. And then and then it seems like, why even do all that if Joseph doesn't have the plates in front of him? But if we look at it as the object in which people need to have faith in, so that this church can get off the ground, so that people who are needed in the early years of the Restoration will buy in, then the plates are essential. They are crucial. If we think about Emma and her statement of them being on the counter with a cloth wrapped around them, and essentially, she didn't unwrap them. She rubs her fingers across them, and she can tell they're single plates, and they make a clinking noise. But think about the confidence Joseph has that the plates are actually there, that he's willing to leave them out in the open, wrapped up, just in case Emma were to unwrap them. To me, that's evidence that there really was plates, and that Joseph was not as concerned as the critics want to paint him of people unwrapping those and looking at them. Now we understand for a moment that yes, there were plates, that yes, they were needed, but no, 
they were not necessarily needed for the actual translation itself. Now let's move on to the Urim and Thummim, the Nephite interpreters. Now Urim and Thummim can be used to describe both the Nephite interpreters and the seer stone. That's important, and we'll talk about that later, and how the narrative uh, works, and how we get the story we have today about how this translation process occurs. But if we just think at the beginning of the Urim and Thummim being the Nephite interpreters, we're told they're included with the plates. So when Joseph uncovers the, the stone box in the Hill Cumorah in Palmyra, New York, again, recognizing that, that this hill uh, is a hill that later on uh, members of the church associate with the Hill Cumorah, but let's call it the Hill Cumorah. He finds a stone box that the angel Moroni has directed him to. He uncovers it, and inside is the, is the gold plates, the Urim and Thummim, the Sword of Laban, whatever other things are possibly in there. We have, again, some conflicting stories from some witnesses on exactly what's in the box. And again, Joseph's the only one who who actually views inside the box, and so he's the only one whose, whose actual account can be completely trusted. And now, a brief message from one of our sponsors. The sponsor is a regular listener to Mormon Discussion Podcast. He has written the book, 77 Days in September. It tells of the story of a man overcoming countless obstacles to reunite with his family after a terrorist attack disrupts the United States. 77 Days is based on a real threat, and while not LDS fiction, it is suitable for an LDS audience. It has sold over 75,000 copies, spent five weeks ranked in Amazon's Top 100, narrowly missed the New York Times bestseller list, and has over 1,800 reviews with 90% of reviewers rating it four or five stars. If you like to read books, you will love 77 Days in September. 77 Days in September is currently available as an ebook for just $3.99 from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and Smashwords. Please show your support for this sponsor of our program by purchasing his book, 77 Days in September. And now back to the second half of our episode of Mormon Discussion. We know that the uh, the interpreters are also an object to place faith in. That in essence, if God wants to give somebody the Book of Mormon in visionary form, he can do that. But it's much easier if someone has faith. So let's consider, for instance, James 1.5, right? If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. We use that all the time in the church. But the next verse says, but let him ask in faith. For one to receive an answer, one has to have faith. Now, God doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us little things to have faith in. So perhaps he answered a prayer of mine. Perhaps he gave me a dream at some point that meant something. Perhaps as I asked questions in a calling, I received a direct answer from Heavenly Father in a very strong spiritual experience, each of those events would cause me to have faith in him, would give me reason to believe and to have faith. This is no different. The Nephite interpreters are not necessary to translate, other than they are an object which builds faith, that when a prophet puts on the Urim and Thummim, he realizes that this is the instrument God has given him to receive revelation through. And so by putting them on, there is this lead-in to, hey, He gave me these, I'm going to use them, and therefore I'm going to be able to come up with whatever he's asked me to come up with. There's this idea of these objects giving him faith. So whether the interpreters or whether the seer stone we'll talk about in a minute, these are objects that Joseph would have immediately had faith in Heavenly Father and in the process by using. We know that William Smith and Charles Anthon, and thereby because Charles Anthon, we're going to make the safe assumption of Martin Harris, report that the Urim and Thummim is too awkward or large for Joseph to use. That is too uncomfortable. Charles Anthon leaves his witness of the events, and obviously he disagrees with with the church's story. But one of the things he talks about in both of his uh, witness eyewitness statements, as he records to others uh, years after 
Martin Harris brings him the the uh, paper with the uh, hieroglyphics uh, drawn onto it. He records that Martin tells him how this young man Joseph Smith has has these plates and he has these spectacles to translate, and how the spectacles are way too large that, in a sense, Joseph can only see through one stone because the two stones are so far apart that he can't put one eye through each, but rather has to focus both his eyes on one stone. William Smith also reports years later that the Urim and Thummim was too uncomfortable because of its size, that it was too big for a, a normal man to use. Now think about that. So Joseph intends to use the Urim and Thummim, and he does for a time, but because the Urim and Thummim is so awkward, so uncomfortable, that he resorts back to using what worked in the past. At this point, he's already done some translating, so he's become more comfortable with the process. He's beginning to grasp exactly what it is that's required of him. If we keep in mind, the 116 pages went really slow. It took a long time to get those out. And yet we know that in the space of around 80 or 90 days, that Joseph translates the majority of what we have today of the Book of Mormon with Oliver Cowdery acting as the scribe most of the time. And he gets that out in such a short time. It helps us maybe understand how awkward the Urim and Thummim was and how awkward Joseph was with the translation process early on. So due to this awkwardness and due to the him becoming more comfortable with the translation process, he resorts back to what's what worked in the past and what is comfortable, the seer stone. Now when we talk about the seer stone, we recognize that there's this storyline outside of the church that Joseph stuck his head in a hat, that he would take a hat, he would place a stone in the hat, and then he would rest his head on the top of the hat so that his face was buried into the, the cavity of the hat, and that, as witnesses said, this would block out all light, and therefore he could see the lighted spiritual messages that were being transmitted from what he perceived as through the stone. Now, we don't show this story, right? If we look at the artwork of the church, we see Joseph with the plates in front of him, we see Joseph with the breastplate attached in an old animated drawing. We see Joseph and Oliver sitting at a table with Oliver and Joseph having a curtain stretched between them. And the idea of Joseph putting a stone in a hat and burying his face in a hat seems amusing or funny. It's an odd-looking picture. It's one that we wouldn't probably want to present to, to others outside our faith as it would, it would uh, incur ridicule and would be a barrier to faith. But it makes sense, though. Think about this. Since the scribe needs light... Since the scribe needs light, it would be a safe bet that most of the translation process occurred during the daylight hours. Keep in mind, we don't have electricity, we don't have fluorescent lights and lamps all over the house, instead we have candles or lanterns, and that's our light. And so for the process of writing and reading days after days after days, I'm not talking about reading by Joseph, I'm talking about reading by the scribe as he corrects things he's writing down. If he were to write during the evening hours and the nighttime, so things would be comfortable for Joseph, he would struggle. His eyes would be sore and it would be a hard process. The easier thing to do, since the scribe needs light, and that received light from the stone is best seen in darkness, it would be best to do it in the daylight hours to make it comfortable for the scribe, and then to find some other way to block out light to make it comfortable for Joseph as translator. It makes the most sense to use some object to exclude light, and to use an object that's comfortable. So Joseph could have put his head in a box. Joseph could have walked into a room. Uh, Joseph could have another room and yelled through the door and had all the windows blocked off and had to be complete darkness in another room. Joseph could have, I don't know, put the stone in his hand and used his two hands to block out the light from his eyes, kind of like you and I would do today with a little glow-in-the-dark uh, stick or something of that sort. But 
the easiest and most comfortable thing to do would be to have a hat that's rounded because your face is round, so you can bury your face into the hat and block out the light. The hat is softer. It's more comfortable. So for hours on end, it would make sense. When we recognize, too, that we have a first-hand account from Martin Harris where he talks about... Actually, I'm sorry. I think it's a second-hand account from someone who talked to Martin Harris where Martin Harris had switched the seer stone, that, that Joseph and Martin were out one day I don't know if they were casting stones across the stream as Joseph was prone to do, but they were out one day and and taking a break from the translation, and Martin Harris spotted a stone that looked just like the stone Joseph used for translating, and that Martin took this seer stone, look-alike, and he went back in, and before Joseph knew what was going on or saw things, he replaced it in the hat and took the actual seer stone out. And when Joseph came back, he tried to translate, looked in the hat and said, Martin, what's wrong? Everything is as dark as Egypt. And so then Martin confessed to having switched the stones because people were accusing him of being duped and he wanted to prove that he wasn't being duped and that that wasn't the case. Now, either Joseph got lucky and spotted the difference in the stone before starting, or again, we've got an evidence that Joseph really was doing something that Heavenly Father had commanded him to do. Now, let's talk for a moment about how the telling of this historical account changes. Early members know of the use of the stone. There are multiple newspaper second and third hand accounts. We we should not feel like that the church was trying to be deceptive and make the most sanitized, simple story they could. But rather, we ought to recognize that this narrative is complex, that there are lots of different statements that say lots of different things, that we even have witnesses such as Martin Harris or David Whitmer saying conflicting things in various accounts of their, of their witness statements. Times people would go to them, newspapers would go to them, people in the neighborhood would go to them and ask for an account of what happened. And in some of these accounts, they would say that the Urim and Thummim, the uh, Nephite interpreters were used. In some of these accounts, they would say the seer stone was used. In other accounts, they would say both were employed. I think we ought to grasp that we tell stories differently based on who's in the room, who it is we're telling the story to. Are we telling it to somebody who's ready to be critical and ready to pounce? Are we telling it to somebody who has faith and believes? And when we start to grasp that, it would make sense that, assuming both the Nephite interpreters and the seer stone were used, that when someone who lacked faith and was ready to be critical, it would be more likely that one would share with them the very simple account of using the Nephite interpreters. And perhaps with members or people that they trusted more, they might also let on about the seer stone and the hat being used. I could completely see that. I don't see that as being dishonest, but rather rather not putting self one out there to be mocked and ridiculed, as the end goal is to bring all into Christ and to his restored gospel. If we keep in mind that at the time when these accounts were known, when the general members of the church understood that a seer stone was used in the early history of the church, there was no curriculum that was church-wide. Rather, lessons or however... Sunday school and things like that were done. They were all geographically based, that everybody did their own thing in their own area. At some point later on, Joseph Fielding Smith in the church, in the process of making a church-wide curriculum, begins to delve into a little bit of this history. And Joseph Fielding Smith in particular tries to figure out what exactly is going on. Now, the most instances we have of discussion about the seer stone and about it being used in a hat come from David Whitmer and Martin Harris and from those who had talked to the two of them. And we'll see that in a little bit. But when we grasp that those two men are the primary examples of people talking about the seer stone, 
and also Emma Smith as well. And then we recognize that the three of them are removed either by taking themselves out of the church or by being excommunicated, that the three of them are no longer members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then we recognize that Oliver Cowdery helped Joseph Smith the most with the translation and says very little about the seer stone. It becomes kind of apparent to Joseph Fielding Smith that these other accounts should not be trusted. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that he was right in that assumption. Um, I think that we'll see, and I think we can understand that there are lots of different things going on, and there is truth in each of these different ways in which the translation occurred, but that Joseph Fielding Smith doesn't trust the David Whitmer or the Emma Smith accounts, and thereby putting into motion a church-wide curriculum that ignores the stone in the hat. It's not done intentionally to sanitize the church history, but rather Joseph Fielding Smith and others within the church felt like in order to be the most authentic, we ought to stay with those who were in the church and those who helped out with the translation process the most. Since Oliver Cowdery did leave but came back, and since Oliver Cowdery was with Joseph through most of the translation, it's those accounts that end up getting more weight put on them. Time and Insight has only in recent years, over the last couple of decades, helped us understand the context of how this all came together. Nobody called the Nephite interpreters or the seer stone by the Yerman Thummim until approximately three years after the Book of Mormon was published. Until then, they were called by names that would have made it very clear what they were talking about. In order to have things sound biblical, sometime years after, again, three years after the Book of Mormon was published, people begin to refer to the Nephite interpreters as the Urim and Thummim. And understand the Urim and Thummim is any tool that, ble- that brings light and truth, that essentially brings revelation. It becomes a convoluted point that the seer stone is also referred to as the Urim and Thummim. And so there this confusion begins. And so we have multiple accounts that speak of both processes. We have words that are being used referred to both methods. And so as confusion ensues, the the story begins to get confusing. And then again, keeping in mind that the church at some point decided to go with one narrative over the other. For reasons that I would say are completely justifiable, by the context of their day and the understanding that they had. The first appearance of the translation story in the form we know it today appeared in 1836. A man by the name of Francis Kirkham discounted Whitmer and Harris's accounts in the use of the stone in the translation process in the October 1939 Improvement Era, long before Joseph Smith did so in Doctrines of Salvation 1956. And so... We have uh, another guy in the church, and I I don't know the background of him. I I should have looked that up. But Francis Kirkham um, must be either a leader or a scholar of some sort. He writes in the October 1939 Improvement Era, an article, where he essentially puts down the seer stone idea and sticks with the Nephite interpreters. And so Joseph Fielding Smith and other people in charge of church curriculum already have this, this precedent for doing this. They already have someone else who's gone before them who has taken these same idea and same steps. In this article that Fransom Kirkham writes, it says, he was talking about early in 1833, he mentions that Phelps takes his cues for calling the Nephite interpreters a Urim and Thummim, or also perhaps a Teraphim, from a book titled John's Biblical Archaeology. This article is quite important for several reasons. It is the first time that we have the Nephite interpreters called the Urim and Thummim. In 1833, of course. It is the first time that we have a comparison made between the Book of Mormon and the Stick of Ephraim. And it also contains one of the earliest physical descriptions of the gold plates. 
the first two items, the Urim and Thummim and the Stick of Ephraim, are added into Revelations in the Book of Commandments before the publication of the DNC in 1835. That is, they don't occur in the 1833 publication, but they are there in the 1835 publication. So we have this idea of of W.W. Phelps kind of gaining this understanding from other works on biblical information. And he's taking this new knowledge, and he is then imposing it on some of the things that are going on within Mormonism and the revelations being received by the prophet Joseph Smith, that he's likely suggesting some of these ideas to leaders of the church, including Joseph, and that they are welcoming these uh, these new ways or, or concepts in which to see these things that are going on. The push to rename these things as a Urim and Thummim seems consistent with the efforts to describe the religious movement in biblical terms, and so to use the seer stones or the use of the Nephite interpreters as a Urim and Thummim as part of the restoration. Likewise, in viewing the Book of Mormon as the stick of Ephraim, we have another attempt to portray the fulfillment of prophecy through the restoration. In general, both of these views are more than a little problematic. And, and so we kind of grasp that there may be imposing more on the narrative than what's actually there. And then to recognize that with Francis Kirkham setting this initiative, that the church then runs with it uh, in recognizing that that some stories seem less credible to them and they end up running with others. And so the church institutionalizes the idea that Joseph solely used the Nephite interpreters and that the seer stone account is not to be trusted. So then we have curriculum that today reflects this ideology that occurred 65 years ago, 75, 85 years ago. And it's unfortunate. And yes, on the surface, when we first encounter it, we're like, why didn't they tell me that? But as we grasp the whole storyline, as we see everything in its context, we begin to make some sense of things. Another interesting thing brought to my attention, there's the critics like to bring up that if the plates were made of gold, they would have weighed over 200 pounds and been impossible for Joseph to have to round. And while Joseph Smith and others referred to the plates as the gold plates or the golden plates, the Book of Mormon never refers to them as that. It simply calls them the plates of metal or metal plates. And some scholars have suggested that rather than being made out of solid gold, the plates were made out of a gold and copper alloy that we do find used in Central America called Tumbaga. We also have a witness account, I believe it's William Smith, who also comments years after the the martyr of Joseph, his brother Joseph. He comments that the plates were a gold and copper alloy. And then a member of the uh, fair list, as we were having a conversation and, and talking about this episode and some of the thoughts, trying to put some things together, one of the members brought up this idea, which is in 1 Nephi, chapter 18, verse 25, and then chapter 19, verse 1. And the 25th verse of chapter 18 is the last verse in chapter 18. And obviously verse 1 is the first verse in chapter 19. And then recognizing that when Joseph translated, there were no ends to chapters, that chapters were divided up later on. And so perhaps at times we divide a passage that is meant to be together, that we divide it unknowingly, in a way that really wasn't meant to be. And so if we look at that scripture, so I'll start with verse 25. And it came to pass that we did find upon the land of promise as we journeyed in the wilderness, that there were beasts in the forest of every kind, both the cow and the ox, and the ass and the horse, 
and the goat and the wild goat, and all manner of wild animals, which were for the use of men. And we did find all manner of ore, both of gold, and of silver, and of copper. And it came to pass, that the Lord commanded me, wherefore I did make plates of ore, that I might engraven upon them the record of my people. And upon the plates which I made, I did engraven the record of my father, and also our journeyings in the wilderness, and the prophecies of my father. And also many of my own prophecies have I engraven upon them. When we see those two, that last verse and that first verse put together, it then makes perfect sense that Joseph, uh, while referring to the plates as gold plates or golden plates, that the actual people of the Book of Mormon who created them created an alloy out of several metals, gold, silver, and of copper. A mix of gold and copper makes the plates much lighter, and by most scholar standards would put them in the 50 to 80 pound range, which, while heavy, is certainly approachable, something that someone who who was strong, which we know Joseph Smith to have been, to be able to lug around and carry. I want to share a few of the accounts that uh, that we have, just to give you a feel for how much variance there is between each of them. Let's start with David Whitmer in 1881. This was to the editor of the Kansas City Journal. He said, I noticed several errors in the interview had with me by one of your reporters as published in the Daily Journal on June 5th, 81, and wish to correct them. In regard to my going to Harmony, my statement was that I found everything as Cowdery had written me, and that they packed up next day and went to my father's, did not say packed up the plates, and that he, Smith, not we, then commenced the translation of the remainder of the plates. I did not wish to be understood as saying that those referred to as being present were all of the time in the immediate presence of the translator, but were at the place and saw how the translation was conducted. I did not say that Smith used two small stones, as stated, nor did I call the stone interpreters. I stated that he used one stone, not two, and called it a sunstone. The interpreters were, as I understood, taken from Smith and were not used by him after losing the first 116 pages, as stated. It is my understanding that the stone referred to was furnished him when he commenced translating again after losing the 116 pages. My statement was, and now is, that in translating he put the stone in his hat and putting his face in his hat so as to excluded the light and that then the light and characters appeared in the hat together. In the interpretation which he uttered and was written by the scribe and which was tested at the time as stated. So there's one account. Now here's David Whitmer in 1884 as interviewed by James Hart. He says, The way it was done was thus. Joseph would place the seer stone in a deep hat and placing his face close to it would see not the stone but what appeared like an oblong piece of parchment on which the hieroglyphics would appear and also the translation in the English language all appearing in bright luminous letters. Joseph would then read it to Oliver, who would write it down as spoken. Sometimes Joseph could not pronounce the words correctly, having had but little education. And if by any means a mistake was made in the copy, the luminous writing would remain, until it was corrected. It sometimes took Oliver several trials to get the right letters to spell correctly some of the more difficult words. But when he had written them correctly, the characters and interpretation would disappear and would be replaced by other characters in their interpretation. When the seer stone was not placed in the hat, no characters or writing could be seen therein. But when so placed, then the hieroglyphics would appear as before described. Some represented but one word or name. Some represented several. And some from one to two lines. 
Emma, Joseph's wife, came to my father's house a short time after Joseph and Oliver came, and she wrote a little of the translation. My brother Christian wrote some, but Oliver wrote the greater portion of it. Here's David Whitmer in 1884. He says, In translating the plates, and this was as an interview conducted by the St. Louis Republican, he says, In translating from the plates, Joseph Smith looked through the Urim and Thummim, consisting of two transparent pebbles set in a rim of a bow, fastened to a breastplate. He dictated by looking through them to his scribes. And so we hear, here we have David Whitmer contradicting his own statement. Now, we're left to wonder whether the St. Louis Republican newspaper got it wrong, and that's possible. But he certainly is, this story conflicts the other accounts. Here's David Whitmer in 1885, interviewed by Zenas H. Gurley. Question, did Joseph use his peep stone to finish up the translation, and if so, why? Answer, he used a stone called a seer stone, the interpreters having been taken away from him because of transgression. And that was because of the loss of 116 pages would be my, my insinuation of what that is, what that means. Now, we know in the church we use the account or the picture of Joseph and Oliver sitting at a table with a blanket between them. But listen to David Whitmer as he was interviewed by the Chicago Tribune in 1885. He says, In order to give privacy to the proceeding, a blanket, which served as a portiere, was stretched across the family living room to shelter the translators in the plates from the eyes of any who might call at the house while the work was in progress. This, Mr. Whitmer says, was the only use made of the blanket and it was not for the purpose of concealing the plates or the translator from the eyes of the amanuensis. A-M-A-N-U-E-N-S-I-S. Sorry, don't know that word. In fact, Smith was at no time hidden from his collaborators, and the translation was performed in the presence of not only the persons mentioned, but of the entire Whitmer household and several of Smith's relatives besides. So here we have the idea that the blanket was not used to separate the translator from the scribe, but rather put in the doorway of the room to keep others away from the process so that they wouldn't be bothered and they could keep the work going. We also have mention here of the plates being out and being used. And so again, we have this conflicting account. And this is all from just David Whitmer. He then goes on to say in the same interview, he says, After affixing the magical spectacles to his eyes, Smith would take the plates and translate the characters one at a time. The graven characters would appear in succession to the seer and directly under the character when viewed through the glasses, would be the translation in English. And so again, now we have this mention of what appears to be the Nephite interpreters. Now, there are what appears to be at least a hundred of these. I didn't count them, but there are multiple accounts from witnesses of how this process worked. And so I want to conclude this way. If we understand the water witching or using a divining rod as a spiritual gift, we understand that the family is inclined to these spiritual gifts. We understand that Joseph receives the seer stone, that the Urim and Thummim, or Nephite interpreters, were way too big or uncomfortable, that the seer stone was found after his first vision, and that he resorted back to using it because it was comfortable and it's what worked. If we recognize why the plates were needed and why the Nephite interpreters were needed, if we begin to grasp that the historical account differs from one statement to the next and that the church somewhere along the way made a decision that one account was more credible than another, and they ran with it. We begin to understand how this whole story comes together and why today we have one story over another. But that doesn't mean that one story is truth or that the church hid the truth, but rather we just see that things are much more complex than we give them credit for. And once we put all this together, then there is plenty of room for faith. Once we see that Joseph wasn't a treasure digger, but a spiritual man who had the ability to see things that others could not, 
and that because of this gift that people requested him to do things. And unfortunately, one of those things was an event where Josiah stole, hearing of Joseph's reputation, requested him to find a buried treasure. Once we put all these things into context, there is plenty of room for faith. There's plenty of opportunity to see Joseph as a prophet of God and as called to restore the Lord's gospel and his church back to the earth. That when we begin to look at things deeper and to be open to new light and understanding, that there is plenty of room for faith in our Father in Heaven and His Son. I pray that each of us will dig a little deeper to find truth and thereby also finding truth in the restored gospel. 